you are listening to AI Ready Healthcare. I am Anirban Mukhopadhyay, your host from Tiu Darmstadt, Germany. The purpose of AI Ready Healthcare is to connect the advanced technological knowledge of Mekai society to different stakeholders such as clinicians, industry personnel, regulatory personnel to name a few. You can expect deep meaningful conversations about bringing AI into the real clinical routine. Opinion belongs to whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together let's make healthcare AI ready. Half past one, the street lamp sputtered, the street lamp muttered, the street lamp said, regard that woman who hesitates toward you in the light of the door which opens on her like a green. You see the border of her dress is torn and stained with sand, and you see the corner of her eyes twists like a crooked pin. The memory throws up high and dry a crowd of twisted things. A twisted branch upon the beach, eaten smooth and polished, as if the world gave up the secret of its skeleton, stiff and white. A broken spring in a factory yard, rust that clings to the form that the strength has left, hard and curled and ready to snap. You were listening to a few selected verses of the Rhapsody of a Windy Night by T.S. Eliot. And now we move to today's episode of AI Ready Healthcare, where I talk to Dan Stoyanov about his crucial central role in the developing of this rather new field called surgical data science and in particular his ideas of along with the success why we need to also report the negative results uh, of the evolving field. Welcome everyone to the third season of the podcast AI Ready Healthcare. I'm Anirban from Tudamstadt, Germany. Together with my co-host Henry, we will be recording this quite exciting episode of the podcast. It is really my pleasure to have here Professor Daniel Stoyanov. Professor is a researcher on robot vision and he's also a professor from the University College London, UK. is a director of the welcome epsrc center for interventional and surgical sciences and as if that's not enough he's also a chief scientist of touch surgery he's one of the pioneers of the field of surgical data science leading the endovis challenges that happen regularly in mikai together with uh, stefani speidel and lena meyerheim and finally also professor stoyanov is one of the most visible and active 
Mikai member in the social media scene, especially in Twitter. So it's really wonderful to have you here, Professor Stoana, whom we will, for the sake of simplicity, call Dan. So welcome, Dan, to the podcast. Thank you very much, Anirban. Very happy to be here. So thank you so much for the invitation and for the opportunity to have this discussion. Um, I don't think I've ever I had the accolade of being so active on social media. So that's a new one for me, but I'm very happy to oblige and, uh, and to be part of it. Very nice. Welcome also from my side. Uh, welcome to the audience and also a warm welcome to you, Dan. So we've heard that you already have a quite a lot of positions in your career. So maybe because this is uh, also the tradition in our podcast today, can you please tell us a bit about how you became the researcher that you currently are? Sure, I can give it a chronological view or a chronological perspective of how things ended up where they are. And I must say, uh, none of it was particularly planned. I studied at King's College in London. I did uh, electronic Uh, and computer systems engineering. And originally it was planned to, to do a five-year master's program, but after my bachelor's, I did a really interesting project thesis in computer vision with Professor Sergio Velastin, who was at uh, King's at the time. And I was coding quite low-level digital signal processing code to run on kind of DSP cards to analyze video streams from public transport uh, stations. Um, so to do person detection, to try to do counting of people, sort of use CCTV footage. And um, I, I just found the coding aspect really, really interesting and got fascinated by the project. And I was offered a, a PhD. So to exit my master's program early and to start a PhD program. And I decided that I wanted to do that. And um, At the same time, uh, King's uh, College were going through some restructuring, and so uh, Professor Velastin decided to leave. I didn't want to move outside of London and decided to stay in London and look for different PhD options. And I was offered a PhD in telecommunications that I was going to take. And then on an off chance, I spoke to uh, Professor Guangzhong Yang at Imperial uh, College, who opened my eyes to this new a uh, research area of doing computer vision on surgical images. Uh, you know, he explained to me how cameras are being increasingly used in surgery. And this just sounded fascinating. I, I'd never really heard anything about this topic before, but it sounded really interesting. It sounded like it was worthwhile, like it, it could potentially lead to improvements in uh, human healthcare. And that captured my imagination and I decided to a PhD in computer vision for surgical applications. And uh, there I worked on these images that were coming from uh, the first Da Vinci uh, to be used in, in the UK, surgeries on the heart, on, on the lungs. It was prior to the surgical robot becoming a main urologist in gynecology, so that it's still finding its feet and its application area. And so I was just really very, very fortunate to start there. And then after my PhD, I wanted to stay in this topic. I was fortunate enough to be at the Hamlin Center at the time to see it uh, form and be founded. So it was a great, great environment. And I was awarded a Royal Academy of Engineering Fellowship, which I was very, very lucky uh, to get. And that instigated my 
independent region, which a few years later I took over to UCL, to the Center for Medical Image Computing, where I became an independent group lead. And so uh, that's really where things started. And since then, I've been very, very fortunate to have fantastic colleagues and great clinical collaborators and really, really bright PhD students that have uh, really facilitated all of the research that we have been doing over the last few years. I also uh, fortuitously met the founders of Digital Surgery, of Touch Surgery, who um, wanted to, to work with us and created a very unique position for me. Not only because it was a unique opportunity, but also uh, just geographically being in London was uh, just the right place at the right time. And so it allowed us to start seeing how some of the algorithms that we'd been developing could transition into products, into clinically usable, scalable solutions. And now that journey has gone even more widely or more, more excitingly. Uh, so uh, digital surgery was acquired by Medtronic last year. And so really the, the scale of opportunity now to see how some of these algorithms can be deployed to understand and potentially to perform surgery better, laparoscopic surgery, and in particular robotic surgery, um, is really, really tremendous now. So I hope that gives it a succinct summary. It certainly involved a lot of fortunate events and just working with bright people and being set on this really exciting path of looking at the digital transformation of surgery and hopefully turn into a very quantitative uh, discipline with lots of support tools that can facilitate better decisions during surgical procedures. Yeah, that was an, indeed a very nice summary. Sounds like a fascinating road through academia to the translation of uh, surgical um, algorithms to uh, clinical. So uh, I was wondering, you were actually starting out uh, doing very low-level coding and programming digital signal processors and finally transitioned to going more to the high-level programming side of doing computer vision. So. Uh, were you somehow able to maintain uh, this low-level side of things, especially in robotics? I think it's a, it's a great question because it's one of the things that I've seen transition so much over the years. So I was very much a C, C++ uh, coder. And I think most of my students today uh, avoid those low-level languages <laughs> like the plague and everyone works in Python and you know, uh, with the deep learning revolution, there's so many toolkits and abstractions and you train models and so on. And so things are very, very different today. I don't think we use very much code in the computer vision research that we do uh, today. That said, if you want to deploy systems on edge, there is a fair amount of low-level optimization low-level low level coding that needs to be done in the deployment cycle, but not in the development of particular modules or methods. When working with robots, uh, low-level is more important. So the, the robot architectures are still require some low-level understanding. But there, there's definitely been a, a shift and a domain gap open for me, for example. So I don't get to do as much coding as I used to. And I feel like I need to learn lots of new highlands that I wasn't used to. I'd be much more comfortable opening up my old C++ libraries and so on. But obviously, that's also not very efficient because everything now is structured and coded in a different way. 
So I think it's just um, keeping an eye out and evolving your skills, but also being aware that as you become older, your students are quite likely to be doing things in a very different way to what you were used to. I think it's it's interesting. So I, I did lots of coding in you know DirectX and OpenGL and low-level video drivers and things like that. And all of those seem to now be a lot easier, but it would still be great to get into some of the low-level aspects because then you have full control of the system. So if you want to create really cool new visualizations of some of the computer vision work that you're doing and link that to 3D space, for example, have complex kind of rendering and, and graphics. And then I think being able to go deeper into the code is, is very, very helpful. Similarly, if you want to connect things to, to hardware uh, and similarly, if you want to optimize for different architectures because very, you have uh, strict requirements for certain things. I mean, things have changed a lot, right? Even, even 10 years ago, the way we were coding and doing things was very, very different to, to the way it is today. So I think it's been really exciting to see that, that change and that transformation. At the same time, somewhat depressing for me because I still like to open my Visual Studio, and, uh, but it's increasingly less efficient and, and more complex. That's, that's a very interesting way of putting things in perspective of how, how over the time really we went in a sort of technical uh, shift in the technical perspective. But I also wanted to ask you a question more about the, let's say, the human and the environment of doing research, especially if you are trying to do computer-assisted intervention, image-guided robotic surgery as what you are doing. I guess the environment plays a very important role. It's Unlike medical image computing, which is much more accessible, you simply can't do these kind of chi research in everywhere in the world. It seems like there is always like a Johns Hopkins or a London or a Strasbourg where, or, or even Heidelberg where, where major Munich where things happen. So can you tell us a little bit about Actually, London as a city and as a community, what role London played in making who you are as a scientist? Yeah, thank you. Um, traditionally, it has been a challenge doing research at this interface between surgery and algorithm development or device development. But I'm hoping that that's changing. So uh, with initiatives like Endovis and EndoCB and there's, there's others, I think we are beginning to open some data. So at least aspects of the algorithm development uh, are going to get easier and it will be possible for wider engagement from the community. So I, I do hope that there is going to be a bit of a shift. I think the traditional problem has been that just a lot of this data isn't captured during interventions. You know, nobody's recording procedures routinely or, or they, they certainly weren't 20 years ago and probably not even 10 years ago. Nobody's structuring any of the other data from the operating room and nobody has time to because obviously it's a time critical, patient sensitive environment. And so I think that's been one of the, the barrier opening up the opportunity to the technical community. And I think given that there was a barrier being in large city with technical experts and also big hospitals with clinical experts really played a, an instrumental role for me. And it, in particular, I think the environment that I joined at, uh, at Imperial College and which later formed into the, the Hamlin Center, 
was one of the early partnerships between surgery and computer science. And so my clinical supervisor was a visionary surgeon that had passion for bringing new technology to improve the way that the service is conducted, ranging from robots to algorithms to, you know, to new devices. So really, I think having that visionary clinical champion was really, really important. And likewise, uh, from the technology side, there was a clear drive that we need to develop technology that can then uh, translate or that would uh, link to clinical problems. So having that environment was uh, really, really pivotal. And uh, being able to, you know, in, in the same day, attend lectures by top computer vision people doing computer science and then walk through Hyde Park and be in surgical theatres where the surgical teams were uh, happy for you to be in the OR, to record data, to, to see what problems they face, to, to understand the clinical process, and then to, to do research uh, around some of those problems. I would also say that, that being in London or being in a big city means that you're quite likely to have lots of different clinical specialties um, because there's, there's the volume of patients coming through. So you may have an opportunity to tackle uh, research in rare diseases, which is more challenging if there isn't a patient population. You may have an opportunity to capture larger scales of data. So I think it's been really, really important. But um, I am hopeful that we're building the, the platforms and the data sets and the initiatives in order to make some of this opportunity more accessible, certainly more accessible than, than it has been before. And I think every year, I'm really excited to see new data sets appearing, more openness and uh, you know, people being willing to open up the, their work rather than sort of hold it and make sure that you're, you're the only college able to publish in a particular area because you're the only guys that have uh, the data or the, the tools to, to do so. So I like this direction of travel and I'm hoping that we'll continue to build on that momentum in the, in the years to come. Thank you. Very well summarized uh, both the role of London in your early career as well as how you are trying to democratize the surgery, surgical data science per se for the others who are not as fortunate as some of you are in, in sitting in London. That's really wonderful. So I guess one thing that came up is basically if we are talking about the people from the Kai community, uh, they heard the word Kai computer assisted intervention. Now there is the image guided surgery, sometimes robotic surgery we are talking about. And now again, the new term of surgical data science. So can you maybe for the non-surgical data science audience of our podcast, can you just tell us the difference between all these things? <laughs> I wish I could. I think the difference is, is sometimes very clear and other times so blurry that I'm not sure that there is a difference. So I guess the computer-assisted interventions term was the original terminology used to describe work that was more the domain of interventions and surgery versus the other areas explored by Mikai as a community, which were maybe disease progression modeling, diagnostic imaging, 
uh, tomographic imaging and fundamental problems in imaging like reconstruction, segmentation, and so on and so on. So I think Akai at the time encompassed uh, devices. So you could work on robotics or robotic device, algorithms that link to the devices, you know, whether computer vision or analysis of kinematics, for example, or other types of, of work. It could relate to user interfaces, so new user interfaces that might be used in, in the operating room. So quite a broad spectrum of technologies, but all linking to surgery and intervention somehow. I think image-guided surgery was a terminology that was specifically focused on image fusion or on essentially presenting multimodal information at the time of surgery using overlays or different types of uh, strategies. So even that actually means that there's user interfaces, there's algorithms such as registration. And so even that is not clearly defined. And then more recently, we're moving into surgical data science, which I think really focuses on processing data coming out. So algorithm development on top of the data that's coming out of interventions. And there there's even debate, you know, does that include new imaging modalities? So you could process data from a new imaging modality, that seems reasonable, but does it also include developing a new imaging, developing new sensors? So even the boundaries there are not uh, fully, fully defined. But I think what's interesting is that over the years in Mikai, the device aspect, so new instruments, new robots, they seem to have you know, shifted and moved away from the Mikai community. And maybe that's a natural thing. The, the robotics community has grown, so conferences or meetings like ICRA and IROS are really vibrant and dynamic now. And so it seems like a lot of the medical robotics and medical device is more targeted to those communities. And the Kai element of Mikai, the pure Kai, seems to have gone down. So I think this year, I don't remember the exact statistics, but it was something like only 6% of papers uh, had self-identified as pure Kai. But the Kai plus medical imaging element is still extremely strong. So I think that was about 35, 36%. So it's still Kai and Mick are still very much together and very vibrant. It's just perhaps with you know, with the very, very dynamic evolution of deep learning and machine learning, a lot of the Kai community is focused on algorithm from the imaging or the signal aspects that come from surgery and interventions or even diagnostic procedures. And some of the more hardware-related device work has shifted to other communities. So I probably didn't define each term very, very well, but that's because I think that they're not clearly defined buckets. I think they, it's a complex space and creating solutions for surgery and interventions usually requires multiple aspects of work. So there's algorithms, but then there's also uh, user interfaces. Um, and increasingly, I would say there's also a recognition that human factors research probably also needs to feature. Um, so research around how people interact with these technologies or how these technologies are implemented in practice is also really, really important and an area that probably we haven't invested enough time into. So would you say that the shift between the pure Kai to more MIC content in the Mikai conference also stems from the intersection between the two fields? I mean, mainly in, in Kai, basically 
Parts of Kai also live from the medical image processing part, but Mick can also live without the computer-aided interventions. Would you say that that could also be a reason for that? Yeah, absolutely. And also maybe some of the modalities. So for example, endoscopy, you know, if you structure the data sets, if you, if you put them out there, then it, it can be viewed as a medical imaging modality. It's just that it's happening during surgical. So it's a surgical imaging uh, modality. But I think that creating the data and putting it out there means that, you know, you may be able to, to take learnings from developing algorithms for MRI or from CT and then being able to deploy them to, to different modalities. Each modality, of course, has its own nuances. So video has a temporal aspect. MRI is 3D in its nature. There's a lot of fundamental work on how those signals are generated and what they actually mean. So I think there, there is still uh, some divide and, and the, the main focus on the specific clinical need or clinical application or clinical target for me is still quite important. But yeah, that, that could certainly be an explanation. Something that I find, obviously, over the last couple of years, everything's been virtual. And so, you know, we've not been able to meet colleagues and experiences conferences the way that we used to. But something that was always a struggle is, you know, if you have a conference that is, let's say, 70% focused on brain imaging and you do endoscopic computer vision, by nature, some of the sessions may not be so relevant to you. And that's, that's been difficult to balance out. At the same time, the cross-fertilization of seeing work that you're not used to seeing and seeing what problems people are working on, being able to talk to them is important and it helps uh, your creativity and for you to develop and maybe to, to borrow techniques from, from their field and use them in yours. So I think it's always been a, an interesting discussion point of how do you make sure that the audience is, is interested and the sessions are representative. And at the same time, make sure that there's cross-fertilization and um, folks from the different camps are actually talking to each other and trying to make it more than the sum of the parts. So maybe one question I always had in mind is that, let's say, the medical imaging or the computer vision style of work, when you are bringing those to surgical data science or the traditional CHI work, like often there are special cares that need to be taken to ensure that it's not really we are like blindly adopting things and making obvious mistakes. So can you give us maybe some examples from your personal work where you have to go through this process of taking or adopting with certain precaution and domain understanding that actually made the adaptation much more useful than a blind, let's say, data download and try out? Yeah, it's a it's a good it's a good point and it's a good question. And uh, um, so I'll, I'll I'll give you I'll give you an example. Some of the early work that I did was on three D reconstruction in surgery, and so with the surgical robots, you use a stereo camera, and so you can of course do computational stereo on those images. And there there nuanced problems. You have specularities, and everything is view dependent, and so. The data sets or the, the, the data type is challenging in a maybe unique way compared to some of the standardized uh, computer vision data sets. But of course, there's a lot of computer vision data sets that are in the wild, that are in, I don't know, underwater. But it was always difficult to get the algorithms working. And 
one of the processes that is kind of taken for granted is if you can calibrate the camera, you can obviously rectify the images and that reduces the solution space of where you're looking for correspondence. This seems obvious and, uh, you know, it's, it's not really a problem. The, the problem was that with the surgical robot systems, as the camera moves around due to the coupling between the scope and the camera, the rectification constantly goes offline. So despite you calibrating pre-op, post-op, maybe even during the, the operation, the calibration is never very good. The rectification is never very good. And so you're kind of forced to solve a problem that isn't really a problem for a lot of other applications. And maybe if you, if you go to target a computer vision conference with some of the stuff that, that you've done, they'd say, oh, well, it's not so novel because this is a solved problem. It's very, very easy. But in your application, it's actually not a solved problem and everything keeps going offline. And so you can't really focus on your core stereo algorithm development and making it the best algorithm possible because you're constantly battling this data problem where your data just doesn't fit in that domain. And so you're kind of straddling an application area where the setup or the, the data recording aspect of it is imperfect. So that's one of the challenges that we face in, in translational work. And so I think recognizing those domain challenges is really, really important and has been a, a, a struggle. And I can see uh, some of my PhD students you know, you see the, the best, most amazing papers being published in CVPR or NeurIPS, and they're really advancing the algorithmic aspect of a, of a particular problem, whereas maybe they're stuck tackling a particular data type, maybe there's not enough data, or the data is labeled not in the best way possible, or the data has some other form of challenge or isn't representative of the full domain. And they're, they're having to do all this engineering work in order to fit, to make some of the algorithms work rather than advancing the algorithms themselves to be at the kind of bleeding edge of algorithm development. And it's, um, I think it's one of the things that's really important to, to recognize and it's very difficult to do. So hopefully by releasing more data, structuring data, making sure that we have some really well controlled environments, hopefully we can, we can start bridging that domain gap a little bit better than what we have been so far. I think one aspect might possibly be that the failure modes that um, might occur in, in algorithms in general would need to be assessed and in some way need to be tackled. So what, what would you say, how, how are such failure modes usually um, addressed in, uh, in surgical data science and computer vision? I think we're still very, very early days in understanding failure because we're still in very early days of understanding the domain and the variability of it. Most data sets are still from a few clinical sites, if you like, and therefore they would have limitations in terms of variability of activity, variability of even patient demographic, maybe. So you know, how an algorithm adapts from being trained on a subset of the domain and how that adapts to being rolled out into general use. I think there's still questions there and that we don't have the answers to. But I think it's an exciting time because some of these systems are being productized and that means that they're being deployed at scales and particular, I think, in endoscopic of a computer-aided diagnosis in endoscopy, 
you see a lot of systems now for polyp detection or polyp characterization. They're productized, so they're available in the market. They're being used in different hospitals. And I think having that scalability of, of data is really the only way that we can answer the, the failure modes and see where things are failing. So, and understand, is it failing because there's a different sensor, you know, different, different manufacturers will have slightly different cameras. Is it failing because there's a patient demographic problem? Is it failing because the way that the clinician is using the system is, is different? And these are all really, really important questions. And I think this is, this is the part that I find really exciting now working with industry. We now have the opportunity to capture that data and really understand variability at a, at a true kind of practical scale. Sometimes when I read uh, research papers, I kind of have that gut feeling that the failure modes that are actually named or um, that might occur to the reader are not, not really fully addressed and that the problem is more or less delegated to the industrial side that is going to translate the technology. So I'm, I'm not sure if I'm actually right about this gut feeling. But would you say that this is the case and also if it's the way it should be or should we maybe focus more also on addressing failure modes and in research, like when we are uh, going to develop new methods? I think it's a, it's a good point. And I don't think it's done intentionally. I don't think it's a case of researchers wanting to just palm it off and say, oh, it's up to industry to really understand failure modes. I think it's just a, an issue of practicality and, and, and scale. So if you're a researcher in a particular university and maybe you have a clinical collaboration with the local hospital, it's very difficult in your setup to understand failure modes in a different country, on a different continent, in a different database. And even the, the contractual exchange of data, it can be very complicated. So I think it's just a very complex space and it's not... I wouldn't say that it's necessarily that the researchers don't want to understand failure modes. I think it's perhaps a limitation of the availability of data or of the labels or maybe even of the understanding of the particular problem. And I think we need to work as a community to establish some of those, I guess, benchmarks so that we can really uh, dig deeper into understanding failure modes. So I think it's true. I think um, we haven't done enough. And I think the way that as a research community, the way that we can really do this and tackle it is in, and creating some of these international uh, data sets. I mean, I'm speaking data in particular for algorithm development, but yeah, international data sets where it's well understood what the data set actually contains. You know, you understand what the patient variability may be, you understand what the disease variability may be, the annotation variability may be. And I think still we don't necessarily have that. If you look at the MIC community, I think for specific problems, they probably have a much more scalable data offering in that space. And I think uh, from the CHI side, we still have some work to do to put these data sets in place. Maybe I can add one point there, Dan, because I guess Perhaps as an academy, we are the Kai community is also not really always very welcome to look at, let's say, papers which are not necessarily bringing another new method, but really trying to understand what are the places where the old method is not working. So, I mean, I can only give you an anecdotal evidence. So in this IPKAI, we wrote a 
paper basically uh, building on top of this phenomenal work by Stephanie Speidel of really simulation to real uh, generalization that she has this data set and we said, okay, let's try to use that and show if you are trying to do simulation to real, there are certain inherent limitations. So if the if during simulation you have only seen certain tool types, it won't really generalize to tool types that don't look like I don't know a shaft and a tool tip. Or if the tool is uh, really there is also like lots of blood covered on the shaft, which the simulation has never seen. These won't show up, and this was I would say like different failure modes which are. Only, let's say, in retrospect, when you see the, the results, you really understand. And we had a lot of trouble uh, to actually convince the reviewers that this is also a valid problem. It's not a really interesting technical problem, per se, or technical solution. But these are really interesting for the overall problem. So I guess as a community, we have to be also a little bit more open to uh, non-traditional papers or, or do you think that this was just really one special case and it's not really so much of a of a general problem? No, I think it's a really important point. For me, it's sort of maybe tangentially, not directly, links to this uh, wider discussion about publishing negative results, which I think is really, really valuable and very useful. It can save people a lot of time. But it's a very complex thing and, and usually not well received and very difficult to do. So even if you've done some absolutely amazing work and you show that, you know, you show you essentially show a negative result. I think it's very difficult to get that work published. And so I think maybe it's about as a community and maybe the wider communities as a whole, we do need to have better maturity at being able to accept work like that and, and really appreciate its value. Um, and yeah, it's quite quite well linked to failure modes because obviously failing on something is is a negative result in some ways, and that understanding about negative results is really really important. But it's it's been an open question for a long time, uh, and I think there are drivers for why we need to do better on that front. It's a hard uh, place, I think. Um, I think maybe connecting to those kind of challenges and maybe going forward to the actual translation, to the clinical translation of our research, what would you say are the main challenges in actually translating research to finally becoming a product? Oh, there's so many. <laughs> I think it really depends on the type of research, you know, if it's an algorithm or if it's a device um, and so on. So I think you've got challenges that are around regulation and the claims of, of what your product is claiming to be able to do. And that's, you know, academia struggles in that space, uh, even in very translational centers, having full support for going through the regulatory process is very, very difficult. And in the end, your regulatory approval or your medical device certification, doesn't matter which category it's in, will need to be and usually that body will not be the university, that usually that body will have to be a company in order to handle issues of liability and, and so on. So I think that's very one very obvious challenge that's sometimes not appreciated, particularly from early stage career researchers. Um, another challenge is really identifying, you know, if, even if you can get your 
turn into a medical device, evaluating the efficacy and the, the real value that it brings to the end user is another challenge that's very, very difficult to do. And you need to answer this challenge, not with just one or two users, but really kind of understanding your marketplace. And so I think that's, a, that's another major challenge. And then you have a plethora of challenges about healthcare economics and care systems around the world being different and having different reimbursement and cost models. And if your technology is going to be successful uh, being translated in, in the wild, people will need to somehow have access to it, either by buying it or by being supported by the national healthcare system or so on and so on. So I think that's a, yet another challenge. And then maintaining your technology, further developing your technology, being able to pivot with your technology. So maybe a great example is with the, the most successful surgical robot today, the, the Da Vinci system. It wasn't designed to do surgery on the prostate. It was designed to do surgery on the heart. Um, and so there had to be a clinical pivot of where the technology was going to be successful. And I think in medical devices, that's a well-known fact that uh, those pivots are important. In algorithms, it's a bit trickier because it's very difficult to train your algorithm to recognize, let's say, um, colonic polyps and then suddenly adapt your algorithm to, to recognize liver cancer. Very different problems and maybe not the same algorithm or the same data sets needed there. So I think those are, those are some of the challenges. And also the amount of investment necessary and the amount of engineering work necessary to make that translation happen is tremendous. So very quickly, you may realize that actually the, the fantastic research and the really deep algorithm that you developed is only a fraction of the percent of what's necessary for this to actually a product and you by clinical teams and to provide value to, to patients or, or to, to hospital systems. So I, I think I've probably touched on a few too many different challenges. I don't want to discourage anyone. It's a very worthwhile journey, but it does have a lot of complexity and time and cost and, and certainly challenges associated to it. So I guess maybe I have a quick follow-up there. So when I see Mikai, it's mainly our technology conference, right? And uh, do you think the being so, let's say, focused on technology has, like, of course, it has many advantages, right? It's not really uh, like just you can just be the premier conference of two different fields without having your uh, great thing. But maybe for the translational aspects where Mikai is always a little bit on the shorter side, do you think maybe at least bringing some part of it, at least some idea of the healthcare economy or bringing some of the translational aspects when people are optimizing the technology itself, will that really give Mikai the age of actually becoming closer to the patient and helping patient out rather than just another technical breakthrough with little clinical value? Absolutely. And it's been very, very difficult to do. I think we've wanted to do it for many, many years and always had, I would say, patchy success. So all of us work with clinicians. Uh, some clinicians have attended Mekai, but it's not been like a, a major part of the, of the meeting. And that's understandable because clinicians have their own communities that attend their own conferences and everyone is busy. 
I thought that this year was probably the most successful on that front that, that I've ever seen. And really due to uh, the leadership of uh, Nicolas Padois and um, you know, Dan Hashimoto and, and others uh, to set up Clinicai. Um, so having these sessions running during the main meeting that are more clinically focused, that allow clinical training fellows or junior clinicians or senior clinicians to really present work at the interface of the technology part of the conference, but with the kind of clinical potential, clinical application clinical utilization. So I thought that was absolutely fantastic. And it was, I think, one of the, the best aspects of the conference for me uh, this year and really looking forward to it growing and, and becoming bigger. So I, I thought that the, the Kai community really, really benefited from Yeah, that's a wonderful point that you have made. The Clinic Kai this year is a very new thing. It's really a fresh air of bringing some of the clinicians back to our radar technology conference. I really hope in the coming years, it becomes a bigger and bigger event, but also probably when we start attending the conferences back to in-person way, we, we have far more interactions with the clinicians and clinicians also get a vibe of the technology that the community is developing. So that brings us towards the end of the podcast. And I guess I have one last question to ask you, Dan. So basically, I know you are busy. You are wearing, I guess, far too many hats with uh, different professorships, directorial work, as well as uh, like the, the translational work. But just imagine in a perfect world where you have an infinite pot of gold, you don't have to worry about uh, money, etc., of writing grants and having you have enough support in the people side as well, capable, efficient people. And then you have roughly a five year to develop something of your choice. So what would be really that one major question that you'd like to address in, in such a perfect world? Uh, I mean, firstly, I, I would love to discover this perfect world. It sounds really, really wonderful. So um I'm very much looking forward to it. I think um, something that's increasingly interesting for me is understanding the spectral component of the signal that we collect through endoscopy, laparoscopy. And uh, one hypothesis could be that there's information there in the spectral domain that is just not visible to the surgeon because they don't see it frequently enough. Maybe. For certain procedures, you only do two, three, 10, 20 procedures per year, and that's insufficient for you to notice this nuanced variability. And of course, with the ability to record data and to run AI algorithms on top of it, we might be able to learn what this variability is and to capitalize on it or to, you know, to, to really get the most out of the information that we're collecting during surgery. So that spectral aspect is really, really interesting for me. And I think I would focus in that direction. Wonderful. So on that great note of doing AI towards the spectral imaging and bringing information by doing fusion back to surgeon in a succinct way so that they can benefit the most and the patients can also benefit the most. That's really a wonderful vision to have. Um, on that, 
I wish you all the best. And I really hope we see each other again in person conferences. And thank you so much for being here and taking your time to, to explain where your field is heading and how you are basically leading the direction. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you so much, Anne. And thank you, Henry. I've really enjoyed today. It's been a great discussion. So thank you very much for leading these podcasts. All righty. Then bye-bye. Thank you very much and have a nice day.